You're locked in to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your trusty host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And hey, if you've just discovered our program, welcome. And if you're a regular listener, we are excited to have you back. So, 80 years ago at this time, America had just entered into World War II, and, well, things were not looking great for the Allies at that point. On the home front, celebrities were doing their part in the war effort by selling war bonds and entertaining the troops in person and on the radio. Among these entertainers were comedian Jack Benny and actress Carol Lombard, two legendary performers in their day who also came together under the direction of director Ernst Lubitsch to star in his controversial comedy thriller To Be or Not to Be, which premiered in theaters on February 19, 1942. Sadly, Lombard died tragically in a plane crash one month earlier, but her luminous screen presence and memorable performance in this film would live forever. And the genius of Jack Benny, king of the old-time radio comedians, is also on full display in this film, which we celebrate this month on Cineversary. It's a happy 80th birthday for To Be or Not To Be, one of the most underrated classic comedies of the 20th century, and a testament to the brilliance of Lubitsch and his many collaborators. Joining me this month in our tribute to this movie is Steve Darnall, host of the long-running Those Were the Days program, a weekly broadcast out of Chicago that features old-time radio shows like the Jack Benny program. Steve and I will examine why To Be or Not To Be is deserving of kudos eight decades later, how it's stood the test of time, its cultural impact and legacy, and what we can learn from this groundbreaking picture in 2022. Ahead of that conversation, let's take a moment to get up to speed on the who, what, where, when, and why behind To Be or Not To Be per Wikipedia so that you have the proper context. To Be or Not To Be is a 1942 American black comedy film directed by Ernst Lubitsch and starring Carol Lombard, Jack Benny, Robert Stack, Felix Bressert, Lionel Atwill, Stanley Ridges, and Sig Ruman. The title is a reference to the famous To Be or Not To Be soliloquy in William Shakespeare's Hamlet's. The plot concerns a troop of actors in Nazi-occupied Warsaw who use their abilities at disguise and acting to fool the occupying troops. It was adapted by the uncredited Lubitsch and by Edwin Justice Mayer from the story by Melchior Langill. In 1996, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Lubitsch had never considered anyone other than Jack Benny for the lead role in the film. He had even written the character with Benny in mind. Benny, thrilled that a director of Lubitsch's caliber had been thinking of him while writing it, accepted the role immediately. Benny was in a predicament, however, as, strangely enough, his success in the film version of Charlie's Aunt from 1941 did not interest anyone in hiring the actor for their films. 
Lubitsch had difficulty filling the leading lady part until Carol Lombard asked to be considered for the role. Lombard had never worked with the director and yearned to have an opportunity. Lubitsch agreed and Lombard was cast. The film also provided her with an opportunity to work with friend Robert Stack, whom she had known since she was an awkward teenager. The movie was shot at United Artists, which allowed Lombard to say that she had worked at every major studio in Hollywood. To Be or Not To Be, now regarded as one of the best films of Lubitsch's, Benny's, and Lombard's careers, was not initially well received by the public, many of whom could not understand the notion of making fun out of such a real threat as the Nazis. While many film critics generally praised Lombard, some scorned Benny and Lubitsch and found the film to be in bad taste. In recent decades, however, the movie has become recognized as a comedy classic. To Be or Not To Be currently has a 96% approval rating on the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes with an average critical rating of 8.7 out of 10. The American Film Institute also ranked To Be or Not To Be number 49 on its list of the 100 funniest American films of all time. All right, let's pile into the Wayback Machine and take a trip back to 1942 to listen to this film's original trailer. to be is truly an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy keyed to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not to Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirth maker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy melodrama enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. It's the picture everyone will want to see. To be or not to be spoiled, that is the next question, because me and my guests will be spilling plot secrets all over the joint in the next hour. So if you've not yet had the pleasure of viewing this film, this is your opportunity to hit pause on said podcast. Watch To Be or Not To Be in its entirety. It's in the public domain, so it's easily accessible online via YouTube and other platforms. And return to us at this point. All righty, everybody back. Let's commence with the conversation. Stepping up to the Cineversary microphone is a man I've long admired. It's Steve Darnall, host of Those Were the Days, a four-hour program now in its 52nd year, heard every Saturday on Chicago Public Radio Station WDCB, a program that celebrates the golden age of radio. And Steve's also the publisher of the quarterly publication Nostalgia Digest magazine. Steve gives presentations on old-time radio at libraries across Chicagoland, many of which can be accessed via Zoom, and he's an old-time radio historian and go-to expert on Jack Benny, co-star of this month's movie, who was a beloved figure on radio in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. By the way, you can learn more about Steve, his radio program, magazine, and presentations by visiting NostalgiaDigest.com. Steve, thanks for appearing on Cineversary, and welcome to the show. 
Eric, thank you very much. Well, it's a treat to be able to talk to you, sir. I've been listening faithfully to the, Those Were the Days program for, oh, goodness, it, it's over 40 years now. And that <laughs> dates back to, of course, when Chuck Shaden was the original host. He passed the torch to you in 2009, and you've kept that program going strong, giving us lots of great entertainment over the past 12-plus years. Has it been a fun ride for you? It's been amazing. I've always said it's sort of like having a job where you lay baseball cards out on the floor and make a team. (laughs) The shows do so much of the work, of course, and and it helps that, that so many of them are still as imaginative and entertaining as they were decades ago. And even the ones that weren't, you know, they still tell you so much about the time in which they were made. Mm. So I'm really grateful to Chuck that he felt the show was worth continuing following his retirement. And I'm, I'm grateful beyond words that he felt uh, I should be the one to do that. So it's, it's been a tremendous ride and thankfully it's not over yet. We're so grateful as fans that uh, you've chosen to uh, take that torch and run with it. And, you know, keeping the spirit of old time radio and the golden age of entertainment alive, what's that like, Steve? Is that, is it an important mission to you? Oh, very much so. You know, I, I certainly am not one of those people who, who lives in the past. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting on my front porch wearing suspenders and a straw hat and refusing to listen to anything that wasn't recorded on cylinder. Um, but, you know, I think as, as Chuck Shaden, my predecessor used to say, we're living with the past. Mm. And sometimes the only way you're going to learn about why the present is the way it is, is to understand the past. Good point. Sometimes that can be something momentous, like, you know, an election or a battle. Uh, other times it can be something as small as, you know, how we bought our soap and our cars and our cigarettes. And being able to learn about all those things through radio uh, has been enormously beneficial to me. And, and I would like to think maybe it's, it's both entertaining and informative to, to get to hear these sounds and hear from the people who made them. Well, I can vouch for those attributes, absolutely. As a faithful listener, it is both entertaining and informative. And keep up the great work, Steve. Thank you, Eric. So let's get into it here with this month's feature. It's To Be or Not To Be, celebrating an 80th birthday this year. So when and where did you first see this movie, Steve? And what do you love about this film, and why is it important to you? Wow, I was trying to remember when I first saw To Be or Not To Be. I want to say it was late 70s or early 1980s. It was shortly after I I discovered the golden age of radio and, and fallen in love with that, and, and especially, of course, with the the genius of Jack Benny. Uh, I've seen it again fairly recently, and there were certainly some things I remembered and from, from seeing it many years earlier, but also some things that had additional resonance for me. As for why it's important to me, there are several reasons. I mean, one, it's, uh, I think, the best film Jack Benny ever made. Obviously, there is there's a bittersweet quality about it because it's Carol Lombard's last film, but mm. the fact is that it's it's a wonderfully funny movie. Uh, it's quite an emotional film in some places. And what's really nice is seeing that it's it's an instance where everyone involved brought out the best in everyone else. Yeah. And and there are, there are times when you can step back as an admirer of films and and see that. And it's it's really gratifying to think that, you know. There was no other film like this at the time. And and looking back, I don't know that there are a whole lot of films like it since. No, totally agree. It's interesting because as a fan of the old Jack Benny program, he would often, you know, joke about uh, 
<laughs> appearing in the film uh, The Horn Blows at Midnight, which, of course, is a, a lesser film than this. Uh, we can we can probably <laughs> agree. Uh, but I don't recall him ever mentioning his appearance in To Be or Not To Be. Do you? Did he uh, mention it on his radio program? Not that I'm aware of. And I suspect there are a couple reasons for that. But I think the primary one, of course, is that it was the film that Carol Lombard made right before her very untimely death. Uh, and as I recall, it came out shortly after her death. It was a posthumous release. I think just a couple of weeks after her death or something very close to that. I think for the most part, people tended to downplay it because of that association. Um, I think... And, and they, were, they were close personal friends. They were close personal friends. And it's my understanding, in fact, that Carol Lombard was going to come home from this Bond trip in January of 1942 mm-hmm. and be a guest on Jack's radio oh. show. So perhaps this touched a, a nerve for Jack and he just Absolutely. wanted to leave, yeah. leave it alone. In fact, um, mm-hmm. now the plane, obviously, yes, the plane crashed and, and she was killed. And yeah, for and, and the following Sunday, whether or not Carol Lombard was scheduled to be on the show or not, and that's what I've read, um, Jack simply chose not to go on. And, and it would not blame me because one, if he was expecting a guest who had suddenly perished the previous Friday, you weren't going to have time to rewrite an entire half hour show. No. And second, even if you could, I would guess it would have been just emotionally impossible for Jack to have gone on knowing that Carol Lombard was going to be on this show. And now she was she was dead. I mean, that, right. that wound was undoubtedly still fresh. And on the Jan- 18th of January, the Jello program won in the air minus Jack Benny. And there was no explanation given, um, but simply a program of music by Dennis Day and Phil Harris and the orchestra. Yeah, so that speaks volumes about, he probably was very emotionally impacted by this and, and chose not to mention it on the program. That makes sense. Yes. And of course, too, it's it's worth noting, this is in the days when radio was live. Mm. So in, in the modern day, you could tape a TV show, and and if something happened to a performer prior to airtime, mm-hmm. yes, you scrap it or you rerun something else. That wasn't an option, and yeah, I'm sure I'm sure for Jack, as marvelous as the film was and as good as he was in it, I'm sure there was a, a bittersweet element to it as a result. Must have been, yes. So why is to be or not to be worth celebrating eight decades later, Steve? Why does it still matter, and how has it stood the test of time, in your opinion? Well, it's a remarkable film in a lot of respects, and and even more remarkable, I think, in that it was made in the weeks and months prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and right. the United States' involvement in World War II. We were still a, a, a bystander when these cameras were rolling. Um, and of course, it's also a very funny film. And one of the things that that makes it great is that it's in its way for the fact that there there are elements of romantic farce in it and those are very big very big part of this film you know ultimately it's a film about people acting heroically and and the need to think outside of oneself and that's always a valuable lesson i mean at the very start of this film we see the acting company in their element you know rehearsing a play and all of them have their egos and all of them have their, you know, ambitions and grudges, including the, the Turas and Tom Dugan, who plays the role of Bronski, mm-hmm. starts the film by playing the role of Adolf Hitler. And so at the very beginning of the film, he's having this, this argument about, you know, what he 
needs to do because he he's convinced he's perfect for playing Hitler. And even to the point where he'll go into the middle of the town square. Right. And, and see if anybody notices anything. And isn't that a brilliant way to kick off the movie? They don't give you any uh, pretext or context. They they explain later why he does that. But at first, you're thinking it's the real Hitler. But of course, it's Bronski. We learn that later, and we learn the motivation. Such an interesting way to to start the film. And indeed, and when, and when the time comes that he needs to convincingly portray Hitler, um, he does a magnificent job. To me, Bronski has the line of the film. There are so many great lines in the movie, but Heil myself is in a class <laughs> yes. unto itself. It's just hysterically funny. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And and the fact that it's an ad lib, according to the producers, All the it just you know makes it yeah that you know and and worth noting too that I think you know in the in the months leading up to the U.S. involvement in World War II. There was there was still an element of burlesque about Adolf Hitler to a lot of people, mm. and certainly there's a lot about him uh, that deserves ridicule. Right. I mean, everything about him deserves ridicule. This was this was before I think society as a whole really got a full understanding of the magnitude of his depravity. That's correct. I think to be or not to be matters because it was bold, it was groundbreaking, and it was controversial mm-hmm. for its day. This was a movie that wasn't afraid to tackle a very sensitive subject for 1942, which was you know Nazi aggression and the subjugation of Poland. It didn't shy away from infusing humor into a very dark and timely topic, and it paid the price of that risk-taking by being accused at the time, I was reading, uh, by, by film critics and Hollywood elites and others of being offensive, bad taste, tone deaf, etc. So, you know, here was a film that dared to depict the Nazis as humanly flawed, as comically fallible, instead of being inhuman representations of evil incarnate. Right. The bad guys are still vile and reprehensible, of course, but they were also mere mortals capable of fatal ineptitude who could be made to look like clowns and buffoons. Lubitsch had said in an interview, quote, It seemed to me that the only way for people to hear about the miseries of Poland was to make a comedy. Audiences would feel sympathy and admiration for people who could still laugh in the face of their tragedy, unquote. Now, again, he came under intense heat for even attempting this film. But it's interesting to think that you don't have somebody like Mel Brooks, for example, without you know, someone like oh. Lubitsch paving the way. And of mm-hmm. course, we've come to love and accept films like, let's say, The Producers and, sure. and some others. Uh, a film like uh, you know, The Dictator by Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, this is a movie that would pave the way for those kinds of irreverent comedies, if you will. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But I want to finish the thought here. And I think it's worth celebrating also, Steve, because... The comedy is graced with that ever-indefinable Lubitsch touch, which was kind of a, a moniker given to him. And when you asked different people what that meant, how to describe it, everybody had a different answer, which is interesting. I'll quote some different people on that definition later, including Billy Wilder and some others. But, but if I were to describe the Lubitsch touch in this context with this movie, I think it means that the jokes here are layered. The laughs are not evoked from low-hanging fruit like you know slapstick or sight gags. The humor was often decidedly adults with thinly veiled metaphors, double entendres used. As on, you know, Jack Benny's immensely popular radio program, the film also gets a lot of mileage out of running gags, right? Like the repetition of Heil Hitler or So They Call Me Concentration Camp Earhart, oh, yeah. eh? And Joseph Tura's delivery of To Be or Not To Be. These are all running gags, which is perfectly in the wheelhouse of, of Jack Benny. 
I want to read you something by the essayist of uh, the Criterion Collection edition of this movie. His name is Jeffrey O'Brien, mm-hmm. and he wrote this. He said, almost no line of dialogue is without a barbed secondary implication. Jokes comment knowingly on the jokes that preceded them, adding elements of ironic awareness too discreetly and rapidly for a single viewing to suffice. That's interesting, uh, Steve, because honestly, to those listeners who've only seen this movie once, you really have to watch it multiple times. I'm not saying that it's a homework exercise that, you know, you're not going to fully appreciate it. Uh, on the first viewing, but the truth is you kind of won't fully appreciate it on the first viewing. There are so many layers upon layers here of, of jokes building upon jokes, and the intersection, the hybridization of the comedy and the drama in the narrative that that weave into one another, that honestly, it took me about three or four viewings to really fully kind of relish and appreciate this movie. Uh, I'm not saying it will take you that long, but it, it will reward you upon repeat viewings, I, I firmly contend. I want to read you another thing. This is by David Callett, and he did the commentary uh, track on the DVD and the Blu-ray of this movie. Great commentary track, by the way. Mm-hmm. He said, The good guys win not because they're stronger or have better weapons. The good guys win because they have the jokes. I think uh, you, you hit upon the thing, too. I mean, one of the things that was bold and controversial about this film, right, was the fact that, you know, Nazis were played to some degree as comic foils, mm-hmm. albeit very sinister ones, and actors were playing Nazis. Yes. And, and, and so in a sense, very postmodern, you know, I mean, you talk about that to write an entire sequence where Jack Benny's Joseph Tura is stalling for time while disguised as, an, as, as Earhart, mm-hmm. You know, like all of us, you know, you keep coming back to the same motif in the hopes because that's the only thing you can think of to say. It's just the only thing he can think of to say is, so they call me old concentration camp Earhart, eh? And then, of course, when he finally meets Earhart, what's the first thing out of his mouth? So they call me old concentration, you know, and Sig Ruman, of course, is fantastic. Oh, so perfectly cast. Um, yes. You know, one of the things about Lubitsch's films that that really distinguishes them is the fact that, yeah, there, there is something very adult about them. Not, not adult in, in the sense of pornographic by any means, but in the sense that you're right, these are, you know, there, there are implications of adult things mm-hmm. in, in a lot of these films, whether you're talking about something like Trouble in Paradise or One Hour with You. Or Ninachka or, yeah, Shop Around the Corner. Shop Around the Corner, of course, you know, so yes, there's, and, and, you know, even here you've got, you know, the the implication that Carol Lombard's Maria Tura has been having an affair with with Stanislaus, the young pilot played mm. by Robert Stack. There's nothing we see that indicates she's been unfaithful, except the dialogue suggests they are having an affair, and and that perhaps <laughs> this is not the first one she's had. No, and of course by the uh, the concluding scene there, uh, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. It seems to be there there's another possible suitor there. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I think it's also stood the test of time thanks to its hybrid design. It works as both a thriller and a comedy, and I think it Mm -hmm. fulfills ably in both genres. When it aims to tickle the funny bone, it hits a bullseye with most of its jokes and gags. And when it shifts into wartime espionage mode, I think the danger feels real and the knot is pulled relatively tight. I believe that Lubitsch also works magic by simplifying what could be an otherwise convoluted plot and paring away logic and plausibility for narrative efficiency. 
So for, for example, many questions are left unanswered. How and why does Maria become a central figure in the resistance? And, and how does Sabinsky find her and end up in her home? Now, this is, this is off-screen kind of, you know, going on, goings on that are unexplained. I guess it doesn't really matter, but it, it, it is a big leap to suddenly assume that, you know, they've found a way to connect with one another that way. Uh, what's the point of Maria leaving a fake suicide letter signed by Seletsky? Well, I think the idea was that while she was composing this, that yes, the actors uh, led by her husband were going to kill Seletsky. And then, of course, the idea would be that this would appear as a suicide rather than, you know, a group of actors murdering Seletsky. I get it, but it, that's not what happens. No, it, it's not what happens. But, you know, the best laid plans and all that. Yeah, I didn't have quite so much a problem with that. I mean, uh-huh. it, it's one of those things you're right there. There are things that the thing that stuck with me in terms of, you know, talking about things you kind of want to have to go back to uh-huh. was at the very end when uh, Felix Bressert as, as Greenberg, the actor who wants nothing more than to play Shylock, right. you know, is, is theoretically, you know, surrounded by Nazis because he's, he's presumably there to make an attempt on Hitler's life. Now, of course, Hitler, played by Tom Dugan, is there. And of course, he and his fellow Nazis, that is the actors, all go out of the theater together. And I was, I remember thinking, wait, did they leave Greenberg in the hands of actual Nazis? And that's, that brings an entirely new level to this film in sure. the sense that, you know, Greenberg made the ultimate sacrifice so the rest of the troupe could get out. Yeah, no, I think that's how the only way you can interpret it. Uh, what happens yeah. to Greenberg? Does he also escape or is he doomed to die? It's left ambiguous. But I think the implications are, are pretty dark. Well, yeah. And in fact, in the very last scene, when, when the troop is in England speaking to the, to the press, he's not in the, in the group. That's so correct. So kind of have your answer there. Right. And it's just like, wow, that is, that is a level of sacrifice you don't always associate with romantic comedies. That's correct. No, and it, 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 it underscores the point of this being a hybrid. It is not all a comedy. It is not all a drama. It is a mixture of both, mm-hmm. and the tonality shifts between those two kind of modes. It can be a bit off-putting to some viewers, especially in 1942, and I want to get into that in the next question, but the only other thing mm-hmm. that kind of stopped me is also what happened to the duplicate copy of Professor Seletsky's papers? Did Maria end up burning them? I, I assume she did, but we're not shown. So, that was a yeah. lingering plot point of, well, they've got to destroy those papers. Where the heck are they? So, again, there are a few questions that were unresolved, and it didn't kill the enjoyment of the movie. It was more, I'm getting to the point of how Lubitsch kind of pairs down things in the plot. It is a rather complex plot, even for being a, a you know a romantic comedy slash drama. So, yeah, uh, there are some things unresolved, but you just have to kind of pick up and move on. Sure. And, of course, it's... It's highly improbable that Joseph Turo would be able to speak perfect German to, you know, Earnhardt or be that calm and intrepid under pressure. So you throw a lot of things out with the bathwater there. It just, you know, take it at its, as, as a comedy and, and you, you don't question it too far. Right. Well, I mean, and yes, and, and to some degree, you know, we talk about the fact that Jack Benny had, had been successful on radio. To some degree, you know, there, there was some playing to the character of Jack Benny, not, not in the sense of the character he'd really established on radio of the, the perpetually 39-year-old tightwad, mm-hmm. but you can hear echoes of that character in the role of Joseph Tour. Yes. You know, in the sense that here is, I mean, he's an actor. Right. So of course, and, and more than that, 
he's he's a star in the group. So he's he and his he and his wife are the the leading the first family of this group. So yes, he's they're both incredibly full of themselves. Right. He's got an e- easily bruised ego, of course. He with- does, and then, and then of course Maria shows up in the flashiest of gowns. <laughs> to play this Nazi prisoner. And it's just like, oh, because why, why on earth would she not want to be dressed to the nines every chance she got, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's really, it's amazing to see the work they did together. My gosh, yes. When you get Jack Benny and Carol Lombard and, mm. and then you get, you know, talents like Felix Bressard and Robert Stack and Sig Ruman. Great cast. Uh, you're right. Yeah. You, you Sometimes you just have to step back and admire the casserole that comes yeah, out. And trust that you're in good hands, which of course you are. I mean, it's Lubitsch. Sure. It's Lubitsch and it's a great cast. You can't fail. So Steve, can you point to any ways in which To Be or Not To Be was influential on comedy, cinema, or popular culture? I think one of the the big influences of To Be or Not To Be was that it it, it was undoubtedly, it was not the first film to poke fun at Nazis. I mean, you had you had The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin and, right. and The Three Stooges had done uh, You Nazi Spy. And I'll never hile again. Those are from I'll never 1940 and 41. So uh, the Great Dictator is uh, 1940 as well. So you're right. There were predecessors. But mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking it might have been the first one to poke fun at them by name because I know in mm-hmm. the Three Stooges, you know, Mo Howard becomes the leader of Maronica. Uh, Chaplin, of course, you know, is is Ad- Adenoid Hinkle. That's right. You know, the fact is, as we said earlier, this this was one of the first to target the Nazis by name and to and to combine, you know, the ridicule of of the Nazis, which they deserve completely, with a hint of the barbarism that they perpetrated. Right. And and as you said earlier, I think this had an influence on everyone from Mel Brooks to, you know, Al Franken and Tom Davis. Put it this way, you know, when, when I was growing up, of course, World War II was long over. Mm-hmm. And as far as we knew, that was it. And I remember a sketch on Monty Python's Flying Circus in which John Cleese played Mr. Hilter. It starts out with this um, this couple showing up at a little, you know, boarding house, whatever it is, and, and they're just in time for afternoon tea, so they meet another couple. Uh-huh. And it starts out with Eric Idle sort of rattling off train schedules, and, and you think, oh, the joke is he's a train nut and a traveling nut, and then they get into the next room, and he meets the other guests, uh, and one of them is Mr. Hilter, who is, of course has a Nazi uniform and and the flopped over hair and the thin mustache. <laughs> and he's there with uh, Mr. Ron Vibentroff. But basically, yes, they're trying to just, dis- you know, they're not very convincingly disguising the fact that they're Nazis. Okay. And in fact, that it's Adolf Hitler. Uh-huh. You know, I think that's the sort of thing that was directly influenced by a film like To Be or Not To mm. Be, whether it was obvious or not. But the idea that comedians like John Cleese could play Hitler and of course, there's the famous Faulty Towers episode with the German tourists. I have to choose my words carefully here because I don't want to make it sound as though to be or not to be normalized Nazis in the world of comedy. Mm-hmm. But I think by making them a subject of ridicule, it inspired a lot of other comedians to do the same. And of course, everyone likes to make fun of a loser. And the Nazis have always been losers, even when they were technically victorious. For comedians, performers who who appreciated both the value of ridiculing fascism, mm-hmm. um, but also, of course, the shock value. There was the notorious instance on Saturday Night Live where when Al Franken and Tom Davis were on as a team, and I think the joke was that they were going to come out dressed in Nazi uniforms and 
And Al Franken was going to announce that his parents were in the in the audience that night, and they were going to come on dressed as prisoners. Oh, okay. And I mean, yes, you and I mean, we can sort of smack our heads in in amazement. Um, but the story goes, I guess, that this had to be cut for time, uh, among other things, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> maybe for the best. Yes, maybe for the best. And and Lorne Michaels apparently had to tell Al Franken, please don't put me in the position of telling your parents dressed in death camp outfits that they're cut from the show. <laughs> oh, goodness. Don't do that to me again. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, like I say, that that's probably an extreme example. Sure. But I think you're right. It, mm-hmm. If it, it had a lot to do with ensuring that fascism could be the subject of comedy and ridicule, which, of course, it completely deserves. Sure. And then, of course, I think of the line from, is it Manhattan, Woody Allen's film, where he's in some group and they're talking about some neo-Nazi thing and, and somebody says, oh, I think satire is the best way to deal with these people, don't you? And I think Woody Allen's character says, no, actually, I think I prefer a baseball bat. <laughs> I believe you're right. Uh, I think that's Manhattan. Yes. Anyway. (laughs) Great uh, references you're pulling up there. So, yeah, you could trace the lineage directly to somebody like Mel Brooks, as we talked about. Uh, Of course, Mel Brooks remade this movie in 1982. I'd never seen it, so I'm intrigued now to to see. I've heard it's it's not quite as good. Have you seen it? I've I've enjoyed a lot of Mel Brooks' work, Uh and a lot of it I am hot and cold on, but this strikes me as unnecessary. Mm. Any event, it it's, it piques my interest, so I, I would like to see it someday, just to judge sure. for myself. But yeah, so uh, just tracing that lineage uh, to Mel Brooks. Uh, I know there was a 2008 Broadway play that adapted this story too. You think of Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Now, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Steve, but it does pay homage to To Be or Not to Be, particularly in its third act, oh. depicting a plot against Hitler while he attends a movie theater. And then there's a movie from 2006 uh, by Paul Verhoeven. It's a war drama called Black Book, and it features a Jewish female character who becomes a spy for the resistance during World War II. And this character likely takes a cue from Maria in To Be or Not To Be. So it's just interesting to trace kind of the influence and inspiration that this movie had on some others. Perhaps modern films like Life is Beautiful, we mentioned uh, The Dictator, and perhaps Joe Joe Rabbit wouldn't exist without a feature like To Be or Not To Be, helping to pave the way for politically incorrect comedy. Absolutely. Right? That's very possible. Sure. You, you think about, as you mentioned, of course, on a bittersweet note, the posthumous death by plane crash of Carol Lombard just prior to the theatrical release of this film. It probably helped elevate her legacy and make fans appreciate her many talents particularly in the comedy genre now of course she was appreciated in her own time but certainly her death added resonance to that so in a bittersweet way you could you could say that the, it had an influence there and then I just want to mention a couple of predecessors to this film itself you know when we examine its influence it's interesting to, to consider the influences on to be or not to be now consider that Lubitsch's film would have likely been earlier inspired to some extent by Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent which was released two years earlier and that film features a similar professor character who turns out to be a villain and there's also Fritz Long's Night Train to Munich from 1940. We mentioned Chaplin's The Great Dictator, which was the first feature-length Hollywood film to daringly lampoon Hitler and the fascists. So yes, it's it's just, it's fascinating to examine and trace the lineage from one to the other. Absolutely, yes. No, you're right. I'd forgotten about Jojo Rabbit, but that's a perfect example. Mm. So how would this film have been daring, controversial, or envelope-pushing, especially considering its political subtext and the fact, as you mentioned, that World War II was well underway by the time of this picture's release. I suspect, I mean, it was being made 
uh, at a time when, of course, the war in Europe had been going on for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But here in the United States, it was a time when isolationism was still a very popular sentiment among a certain segment of the population. That was sort of like the idea that, you know, this was not our war. There's mm -hmm. no need for us to, to take, get involved or take an interest in it. Uh, obviously, by the time the film was released, a lot of people had changed their minds about that. And of course, it was controversial for the fact that it was drawing upon a group who are both inherently stupid and cruel for laughter. And in fact, there was great controversy in Jack Benny's own family about this film. In his autobiography, which was published many years after his death, mm -hmm. Jack wrote about how his father, Meyer Kubelski, went to see To Be or Not To Be. And of course, in the first 10 minutes, his son enters in a Nazi uniform. And this infuriated his father, who stormed out of the theater, would not talk to his son for days. And then finally, Jack convinced him, if you, if you see the film all the way through, you'll see that I'm not actually playing a Nazi. <laughs> Got to go back and see it again, Dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, then Meyer Kabelski relented, went back to see it, apparently loved it so much he saw it another four dozen times. And you, you know, if Benny's own father walked out, there were probably many, many other uncounted throng that also walked out or didn't give the movie a chance because of the controversial nature of the, the subject matter. I suppose that's true. Yeah. And, and I think anybody who walked out missed a, a good thing. And then, of course, the fact that, as we've said, Lubitsch could be a very adult filmmaker for mm -hmm. that time right? And and present a lot of subtext. And so, yes, the fact that as a result... As you said, Eric, this this film is kind of, I don't want to say neither fish nor fowl. It's mm. actually many different kinds of fish. Good way to put it. And it's a very, it's a kettle of fish. Yes. Um, and so, you know, yes, is it is it a romantic comedy? Is it is it a war drama? Is it a spy story? It's kind of all those things at a time when it wasn't common for a film to be all those things. Yeah, good point. Uh, that's that's one of the less actual controversial things about it. But for the time, yeah, it was a very bold sort of film to make in that regard. And then, of course, you've got the fact that you've got Carol Lombard, who has done drama in movies, but is better known for comedies like Nothing Sacred and My Man Godfrey. Screwballs, yep. Right. And Jack Benny, who is known as a radio comedian. Mm -hmm. playing these two ultimately serio-comic roles. So, you know, the fact is, yes, if you'd, if you'd gone to see Jack Benny's movie career up to that point, it was fairly undistinguished. You know, he played characters that were not dissimilar from Jack Benny, the performer, films like Man About Town and uh, Buck Benny Rides Again and Love Thy Neighbor, which with his radio nemesis, Fred Allen. And these are all perfectly fine films, but to be or not to be is not anything like those films. Yeah, again, just the, the overall, the decision to pursue a comedy about Nazis and the invasion of Poland, that would have been you know, very upsetting to a lot of people, I can understand. And to give it a little context, I want to read you something from Deep Focus Review blogger Brian Eggert. He wrote this. He said, imagine if a comedy about al-Qaeda terrorists attacking the World Trade Center had gone into production in the summer of 2001 and had been released shortly after 9-11. Well, that would be the modern-day equivalent of Lubitsch shooting To Be or Not To Be in Hollywood in late 1941 for a premiere of March 6, 1942. Imagine that, Steve. That's a pretty apt comparison. Yeah, and um, I mean, I would, yeah, I'd hesitate to compare anything to 9-11 to or to Pearl Harbor directly. But yes, the same, the same equivalent. Yes, that, that yes, here we were, and, and this thing which, which was very abstract was now very much in our faces. And yes, the fact is that 
this film came out what at the very beginning of 1942. So you add to that that the United States is at this point less than two months into World War II, and at a time when compared to nations that have been waging war for several years, like Italy and Germany and Japan, the U.S. is sort of playing catch up. You know, so in those early weeks of 1942, Americans were hearing as much bad news as good. That's true. And I would think anything about the war that was at all bittersweet, that was at all tempered by the notion of loss or defeat, would have been a tough pill to swallow. Agreed. Absolutely. Just think about how to be or not to be had the guts to make Nazis fallible and flawed, to strip them of their unstoppable machine-like qualities and expose them for the imperfect humans they truly were, this humanizing approach would have certainly angered some people. David Callett, in his commentary, he made the following observation in saying that Lubitsch finds a way to defeat the Nazis by humanizing them. Understanding them is the only way to defeat them. Our heroes understand our foes well enough to infiltrate and impersonate them. And then I I cited Brian Eggert a moment ago. He, He went on further to say that, Lubitsch emphasizes a profound truth indeed, that Nazis were not the superhuman monsters that so many cinematic representations made them out to be. Rather, they were preposterously cruel and deluded human beings, and whoever chose to follow ridiculous figures such as Hitler were equally incompetent. Lubitsch also demonstrated how vulnerable the Nazis could be, an important message to incite U.S. involvement in World War II. Lubitsch's Nazis are weak-minded and buffoonish people, ever frightened of their overseer and prone to interrupting conversational lulls with an enthusiastic, if discomfited, Heil Hitler. By portraying them as incompetent, Lubitsch strikes a much more severe blow to the Nazi philosophy. And Steve, remember the words of Professor Seletsky. He says to Carol Lombard, We're not monsters. Tell me, do I look like a monster? We're just like other people. We love to sing. We love to dance. We admire beautiful women. We're human. This is a central point of the movie. And you recall as well the ample blood that soils Seletsky's clothes when he's shot, right? It was rare to see blood or gore in a 1940s movie, for that matter. That's true. And and this image makes us think of Greenberg's recitation of Shylock from The Merchant of Venice, wherein he says, If you prick us, do we not bleed? And that saying is as true for the enemies as it is for the heroes by virtue of Seletsky bleeding and, you know, showing that he is absolutely mortal. So this, I think, is no small point here that uh, Lubitsch and his collaborators are touching on. Well, and and you talk about the the scene near the end where where Greenberg finally gets to recite Shylock's famous speech from The Merchant of Venice. Yes, and by the way, there are three recitations of that throughout the movie by Greenberg. It's interesting because it builds upon each recitation. Yes, and at the very end, of course, he's literally surrounded by Nazis when he says it. Yes. It's a really incredible moment and, and sort of gets back to what you were saying, that there's, there's an element of heartbreak in that he's finally getting to play Shylock. Also, of course, he's saying this as a Jewish actor, right? trying to simply appeal to a group who are blinded by ignorance and prejudice. And for me, the other thing that really makes that powerful is, you know, we talked about the stupidity and the cruelty of, of the Nazis. And here he is doing this speech, and none of the Nazis seem to have any idea what it's from. You know, as far as they know, this is simply a Jewish man who showed up to assassinate Hitler and is now just sort of speaking off the cuff. Mm -hmm. You know, if the fact that 
that this is a, a group that is so ignorant and hateful that they have no idea he's literally quoting one of the most famous writers in the history of the world says a lot about them as well. Yes, that's a fantastic point as well. We talked earlier about how the picture is a mashup blend that offers, you know, both thrills and laughs, comedy and tragedy, you know, silliness and seriousness. It's a satire and it's a spy story. It's a war movie and it's a thespian farce, right? The narrative can shift subtly in tone, as we were discussing earlier, you know, disorienting viewers, not only to this kind of alternation, but just overall, it's it's just such a strange crossover kind of blend. It's far from the funniest movie you've ever seen, I would argue, and it's it's certainly not the most gripping study in suspense ever made, but it does balance between light and dark tonalities, I think, quite deftly and entertainingly. Mm-hmm. And then you think about, you know, again, getting back to Lubitsch and his sensibilities and proclivities. There are so many hints of sex and infidelity and cuckolding, and the filmmakers consistently use comic innuendo, double entendres, farcical bedroom situations, as one would probably expect of a Lubitsch-sophisticated adult comedy. If you've seen enough of his work, it's pretty consistent. There's also that risque line by Professor Seletsky about Maria being a cheap little, and then he doesn't end the phrase, And we are left to fill in that blank, which, of course, means something like horror, right? So that would have been quite shocking, I think, for 1942, even if it pulls its punch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then you ponder how Lubitsch equates Germany's invasion of Poland with the infiltration of Joseph's bed by Sabinsky. So, again, the implications, the innuendos, very adult. You consider the, the many famous quotes in this movie. It's replete with great lines. But lines that would upset many in Applecart, things like, you know, what he did to Shakespeare, we are now doing to Poland. We do the concentrating and the Poles do the camping. Mm -hmm. So they call me concentration camp Earhart, eh? You might not believe it, but I can drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes. And if we should ever have a baby, I'm not sure I'd be the mother, followed by Benny's, I'm satisfied to be the father. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is grown-up stuff, is it not? I mean, and it, it delights on multiple levels, but you, you really got to have a sophisticated kind of comic sensibility to pick up some of these things. Absolutely. You also think about how Maria doesn't pay a price at the conclusion of the film for her flirting or her potential infidelities, and she and the pilot remain sympathetic figures despite their possible philandering. Recall that the last scene suggests that Lieutenant Sabisky isn't the only man she has a dalliance with. We were talking about this. This new unidentified man in uniform gets up to presumably rendezvous with her during Joseph's latest delivery of Hamlet's soliloquy. So, again, adult stuff all the way. It's also interesting, last point here, Steve, in, in that the character we loathe the most is Professor Seletsky. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily Colonel Earhart or Captain Schultz. Perhaps that's because Seletsky never makes us laugh, right? You know, whereas Earhart and Schultz are the butts of many jokes. I agree. Seletsky's characterization is played, as you put it, as a as a human being uh, mm-hmm. and and really as a Nazi. I mean, Sig Ruman as Earhart, I mean, he's, he's marvelous, of course, but you're right. It's there's something over the top and farcical about it. Zaletsky mm. uh, doesn't have anything like that. And so, you know, that's why it's it's both satisfying to see him gunned down, you know, in the theater, but also kind of shocking. Maybe because of who he was, you know, no one felt the same reservations about showing his literally bloody demise. Right, yeah. But, you know, I know, it's the same thing uh, when, when Hitchcock made Lifeboat, mm-hmm. you know, and that was a couple of years after this. And by then, of course, 
you know, the Germans were, were the subject of ridicule in a lot of films from cartoons to, to full-length features. Sure. But of course, you know, probably there were few portrayals of Nazis that were quite as chilling as the one Walter Slezak gave in, in Lifeboat. And for the very same reason, as Hitchcock said, you know, we, I think he said along the lines that we make these people into nothing but buffoons at our peril because they're clearly capable of monstrous things. Yeah, it's interesting. He took an opposite approach and no one's to necessarily say one is better than the other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But in both cases, they're presenting Nazis who are chillingly matter of fact about the fact that they're horrible people. Right. Absolutely. Before I transition here to talking a bit about Jack Benny, was there a favorite line you had in the movie? I, I quoted some of them and perhaps maybe not your favorite line, but uh, which one do you take away most? Oh, my God. Well, of course, it's it's hard to imagine going without. Um, so they call me old concentration camp air eh? <laughs> It sure is hammered home. You know, and then, and then Sig, Sig Ruman's routinely crying out for his assistant. Yes. You know, it's filled with great lines. I would yes. hesitate to say that one leaps to my head more than the others. But sure. Great stuff all the way around. Yeah, the tons of dynamite in two minutes is, is pretty special as well. Absolutely. <laughs> really good, especially considering this is 80 years ago. Would you like to uh, share with the audience a little bit about what you know about Jack Benny, just why he was the perfect person to cast in this role? Well, Jack Benny, I think, was confused about why he was cast in this film, too, because he had been a comedian and he had been on radio. But, but something Jack did on radio that was very important was he was one of the first comedians to come out of vaudeville and get on radio and realize that the two mediums were very different. You know, in vaudeville theater... You'd be on a stage by yourself performing for an audience of anywhere from 50 to 500 people, and you'd have to tailor your comedy accordingly. Jack realized that when you're on the radio, people aren't listening to you in groups of 500. You know, we're listening by ourselves or with friends or family. Jack realized that you couldn't simply come out like you were on a vaudeville stage and, you know, with the bottles of seltzer and the baggy pants and still expect to get the same response. So Jack and his writers... Harry Kahn at first, and then Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne, worked at crafting this character that Jack Benny played. You know, and that's where we we remember Jack Benny for playing the, the cheapskate, you know, the one who insists he's 39, the one who can't play the violin, the one who drives the 1927 Maxwell for decades. And when Ernst Lubitsch cast him in this film, of course, Jack asked why. And Ernst Lubitsch said, because Jack, you are not a comedian. You are an actor playing a comedian. And that made so much clear, not only about Jack's role in this film, but also about, about Jack's career in radio and television. That's probably why Jack's other films weren't quite as successful. Whoever worked on them didn't have that understanding. Uh -huh. But yes, the fact is that Jack Benny made the choice, and it was whether he knew it or not, it was going to follow him around for the rest of his life, that people were going to think he was cheap and wore a toupee and, you know, didn't have enough blood to charm a mosquito, <laughs> all of those things, you yeah. know, and, and he went along with it. You know, this was really sort of a, uh, you know, if, if you'd said, mm -hmm. you know, he was going to be this not Andy Kaufman like character, but in the sense that, that, that he was going to eventually be subsumed by his art, you know, I'm sure no one would have seen that coming, but in fact, Jack lived this character. And of course in real life, as everyone knows, he was a really, generous man. He paid his actors more than scale. He overtipped in restaurants. But yeah, that's I think I think that was key to understanding the comedy of Jack Benny and Ernst Lumich caught on to it before anybody. 
And was he at this time uh, when they were making the movie and after it was released for that matter, uh, was he the top talent on radio? He was certainly one of them. I mean, this was certainly a, a golden age for radio comedy. I mean, mm. Bob Hope, of course, was absolutely unstoppable. You had Fibber McGee and Molly, Jim and Marion Jordan. You had Jack, you had Fred Allen, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. But the point is, he was a household name. And, oh, and yeah. what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, he's he's cast second after Carol Lombard. Was that the right choice uh, or was it? I, I'm just curious in terms of audience expectations, seeing Jack Benny's name on the marquee. Would they have expected him to be before Carol Lombard, for example? Oh, I don't know. I think Carol Lombard was a was a movie star. Sure. Jack was a star, and that's not quite the same thing. Right. So, yeah, I don't think it was a great injustice in that respect. And obviously, for someone like Jack, who was very generous with credits, I can't imagine he would have jockeyed for position, particularly with a friend like Carol Lombard. Right. I was just curious about that. I want to touch briefly on if there are any themes, messages, or morals to the story that you'd like to hit upon, Steve. Oh, gosh. I think the big theme, in the words of Woody Guthrie, all you fascists are bound to lose. Mm. I think one of the themes of this film is about finding a way to give of yourself when the occasion demands it. And certainly this did. I mean, as we said, at the start of this film, you've got a group of, you know, beleaguered and egocentric actors who are all sort of wondering why their part isn't bigger, why their costume isn't better. And when it becomes apparent that they're going to need to rise above those petty concerns, they do it. They Some, some get to it faster than others to that mm-hmm. point, but they all rise to that occasion. And there's something very uplifting about that, even amongst the dangers and the threats and the horrors that are alluded to in this film. Yes. Yeah, well said. Okay, Steve, if you bear with me here, I want to lay out the case for some different themes, morals, messages in To Be or Not To Be. The first being play acting, deception, and the power of theatrical performance. Yeah, this is a farcical story about mediocre actors who somehow managed to fool their most hostile crowd, being Nazis bent on their destruction. And here, artifice requires artistry, you could argue. Mm -hmm. I want to read you something by Ed Gonzalez. He's a reviewer for Slant Magazine, and in his write-up of the film, he wrote, To be or not to be is largely about the interplay between art and reality, and it uses modes of performance to challenge the stiffness and authority of a preposterous political regime. Just as Shakespeare gave Hamlet's contemplation of suicide a political context, Lubitsch similarly offers the actors in his film an existential challenge. Frustrated by their inability to act, shortly before the Nazis invade Warsaw, their anti-Hitler play Gestapo is shut down, the actors take arms against a sea of troubles in order to live the life of the theater vicariously through their mockery of the Nazi movement that seeks to destroy them. Many of the film's pleasures, then, derive from watching these characters successfully use the tools of the stage, meaning improvisation, sense, memory, prosthetics, to successfully subvert the Nazis, quote-unquote. And you think about the film's title, which is a theme in itself, to be or not to be, or the juxtaposition of truth versus lies, of authenticity versus fabrication. You know, fascinatingly, in example after example, Steve, the movie gives us facsimiles of the truth, such as the thespians costumed as Nazis, before showing us the real things. 
And here I want to quote Brian Eggert, blogger for Deep Focus Review, who wrote, By pairing stage actors against Nazis who play the part of monsters, and then suggesting these actors must behave in farcical ways to pass as Nazis and survive, Lubitsch plays with notions of reality and theater, and by the end of his film resolves that the Nazis, too, are simply actors on a stage. This interplay of reality and theatricality aligns his film's absurdist Nazi behavior with real life, whereas the Polsky troops' stage performances are knowingly artificial. Still, they're both gross exaggerations and silly for the viewer, which thereupon delivers a staggeringly refined insult to Nazis. By implying Nazis are just actors on the world stage, Lubitsch discredits their most effective and intimidating weapon, their theatricality, and strikes a staggering blow through the art of cinema. Okay, point number three, don't underestimate the creativity and cunning of the underdog or the loser who can overcome the odds with pluck and providence. I thought of that as a possible reading into the movie. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, exposing frauds for who they really are. I think that stands out as a message here. The worst frauds, Solotsky and Earnhardt, are revealed as being true charlatans due to their incompetence. But the clever frauds, Joseph and his fellow actors, they deceive relatively effectively, although they come close to ruin on several occasions. We can agree. More food for thought. If you prick us, do we not bleed? I think this is a major theme as well. And it's recited by Greenberg. Uh, It's from the famous Shylock speech from The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. Greenberg recites it several times in the film, reminding viewers of the fact that real flesh and blood human beings particularly Jews like Greenberg, were suffering at the hands of the Germans. You think about how Greenberg is a surrogate here for Lubitsch, the director, trying to impress upon audiences in 1942 that the Nazis were treating Jews inhumanely. I think Greenberg is the film's voice of conscience. He forces us to reckon with the unfair plight of the Jewish people, the extent of their suffering, and the abominable racist and discriminatory ideology that the Nazis used to justify treating Jews as subhuman. So, again, different ways to think about to be or not to be besides the obvious yucks, laughs, and suspense, which makes it a more meaningful entertainment, something that fosters further thought. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we're celebrating an 80th birthday here, and birthday parties, you think about uh, a party given for a major birthday, they're often remembered for the presents that are given. Only it's film fans who continue to get these gifts, Steve. So what is to be or not to be his greatest gift to viewers? Golly, in terms of a greatest gift, that's there's a lot to choose from. I think in terms of performance, I think it's one of those marvelous films where everything came together in pursuit of a goal that was not a common goal. I mean, obviously, yes, everyone strives to make a great film, but given all the themes we've talked about, Eric, and, and the performers we've talked about, the fact is that, yes, there's something really uplifting not only about the, the the resolution of the story in terms of overcoming an evil, but in terms of seeing everyone come together for the sake of creating something that was very special. You know, you can you can point to a few films like Bringing Up Baby is another example, albeit a very different sort of film. But you know, you just sort of know everyone working on that was sort of at the top of their game. Absolutely, and that's what you get here. Sure. And in terms of films longevity. I don't think you can ask for more than that. Obviously, we're in an era where, regrettably, Nazis have not been permanently consigned to the dustbin of history. Mm. But films like this are important. I think one of the gifts is just a reminder that, you know, when evil threatens, 
sometimes it is ordinary people who band together and stop it. You know, what is the, the famous Margaret Mead quote? Never doubt that a small, concerned group of citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Yeah, well said. Ask me what to be or not to be's greatest gift to viewers is, and I guess I'm going to give you a multifold answer here. Mm-hmm. So I think the film's greatest gift is its ability to so thoroughly satisfy as both a comedy and a suspenseful war film. We've talked about this a lot earlier, but ponder that it takes considerable talent to be able to alternate, you know, mood, manner, and method throughout a film like this without completely alienating viewers who most value laughs or without abandoning those who like their espionage and intrigue served up savory and warm. Secondly, This is one hell of a screenplay by Lubitsch and Edwin Justin Mayer, right? I mean, it's a story that functions like a finely crafted timepiece. As with an antique watch, which is comprised of a complex system of springs, rotors, gaskets, escapements, balance wheels, and other interrelated intricate parts, to be or not to be relies on precision craftsmanship and a delicate rhythm between what would seem like incompatible components. Ruminate on how meticulously structured this story is, in which the dramatic narrative is commented on so cleverly by the jokes, which have layers upon layers of meaning and resonance, creating a sophisticated style of comedy that doesn't aim for cheap and simple laughs, but instead is designed to make you think deeper as you chuckle along while never forgetting the underlying conflict that Nazism is at war not only with nations, but with humanity itself, and it will take cunning and ingenuity by even the least skilled and talented to help defeat this formidable foe. And we can certainly credit the Lubitsch touch with helping to make To Be or Not To Be so downright smart and entertaining as both a laugher and a not-twister. Film critic Richard Christensen described the famous Lubitsch touch as embracing, quote, a long list of virtues, sophistication, style, subtlety, wit, charm, elegance, suavity, polished nonchalance, and audacious sexual nuance, unquote. While Billy Wilder summed it up as, quote, the elegant use of the super joke. You had a joke and you felt satisfied, and then there was one more big joke on top of it, the joke you didn't expect. As evidenced in so many of his best works, like we were talking about Nanachka, The Shop Around the Corner, Designed for Living, and Trouble in Paradise, Ernst Lubitsch, he could marry many different sensibilities and hybridize varied genres and subgenres of cinema with relative ease thanks to his considerable gifts as a master teller of adult stories, his knack for showcasing the dynamism and the distances between men and women, and his propensity for exploring the many facets of sexual politics. To be or not to be is the ultimate testament to this man's many, many talents. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, are you currently working on anything that you'd like listeners to know about, uh, either with the radio program or your presentations or otherwise? Well, February is always Jack Benny month on Those Were the Days. And uh, this year, 2022, it's not only the 80th anniversary of To Be or Not to Be, it's the 90th anniversary of Jack's first weekly radio show. That's right, yes. So we're celebrating that with an audio documentary that my predecessor Chuck Shaden made uh, called Speaking of Radio, the Jack Benny program. And of course, a lot of Jack's comedy and the comedy of people with whom he worked, like uh, Mel Blanc and Dennis Day, will be part of this as well. Um, Our magazine, Nostalgia Digest, comes out every quarter. And I'm really excited because in 2022, we are making a digital edition of the Digest available to our subscribers in a, as well as a print version. Yeah, I heard you mention that on the show recently. Mm-hmm. 
We're very pleased to be joining the 21st century only, what, uh, one-fifth of the way through it. <laughs> Better late than never. Exactly, yes. And and I won't say that we're world beaters technologically. I mean, my gosh, what could be more nostalgic than print, you know? So, But uh, the spring issue will be coming out uh, at the beginning of March with a cover story about Bing Crosby and articles about Anne Sheridan, who made a film with Jack Benny, and Suspense, which coincidentally Jack, a radio show Jack was on several times. My favorite of all time. Mm -hmm. Radio's outstanding theater thrills. I'd also like to mention that on Sunday, April 10th of 2022, we are finally hosting the 50th anniversary of Those Were the Days with a live event at the Irish American Heritage Center in Chicago. Um, we're going to be recreating some moments from the golden age of radio with great actors uh, from around here and, and others. And people can learn about that at uh, WDCB.org. Yes. And they can learn more about, of course, the Nostalgia Digest. And those were the days at NostalgiaDigest.com. Absolutely. Well, Steve, I want to thank you profusely for taking the time to talk to me today about To Be or Not To Be, about Jack Benny and Ernst Lubitsch and this wonderful film that is so worthy of celebration 80 years later. It was a real treat talking to you, Steve. Eric, thank you. It's always a pleasure to get to talk about Jack Benny and this film, and I'm grateful to you for your hospitality. Thank you. A lot of fun there to talk with Steve Darnall about a treasured comedy masterwork like To Be or Not To Be and discuss legends like Lubitsch, Lombard, and Benny. In the It's a Small World department, full disclosure, Steve and I have crossed paths professionally and personally many times in our career, actually, although we didn't officially meet in person until about 13 years ago. He and I held the same position for a past employer, not at the same time. We both contributed articles to the same publication as freelancers, and I've been published in his Nostalgia Digest magazine several times as well. We're also both pretty tall, although he's got me beat by a couple of inches. And, of course, we both adore old-time radio, so we've got that going for us, right? Steve, my infinite gratitude for spending time with me this month to converse about this film and to share your knowledge and opinions. And here's to the continued success of your show, Those Were the Days, which, take it from me, it's still as entertaining today as it was decades ago. And by the way, you can stream his program live every Saturday between 1 and 5 p.m. Central Time using the TuneIn app and going to WDCB 90.9 FM. And you can also listen to the two most recent episodes of Those Are the Days on demand at NostalgiaDigest.com. Yep, time now for Standing Ovations. This is where we spotlight a film, TV show, website, book, podcast, or other work that we think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you. For February, I wanted to give a shout-out to a boutique label called The Film Detective, which has kind of floated under the radar for a while, often in the shadow of more publicized distributors like, oh, say, the Criterion Collection, Kino Lorber, Shout Factory, and Arrow. The Film Detective prides itself as a one-stop source for classic feature films and several cult movie classics, along with hundreds of hours of classic TV from the 1950s and 60s. Its carefully curated collection includes mysteries, horror movies, westerns, noirs, silence, shorts, documentaries, and rarities. Founder Philip Hopkins has steered the ship since 1999, bringing many lesser-known, underappreciated, and forgotten films to DVD and Blu-ray. Among the notable releases in recent months are the Sherlock Holmes Vault Collection, which features four early Holmes films, A Life at Stake, starring Angela Lansbury, The Capture, featuring Teresa Wright and Lou Ayers, Flight to Mars, now this is an early science fiction picture, The Fabulous Dorseys, spotlighting the talents of legendary big band musicians Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, 
Frankenstein's Daughter, The Amazing Mr. X, and the forthcoming Monster from Green Hell. These are three B-movie horrors from the 40s and 50s. And the label's newest release, The Dancing Pirate, the first dancing musical in full technicolor, originally released in 1936. These are among more than 3,000 titles in the Film Detectives Library that have been remastered and released on home video, with most sporting the movie's original artwork on its covers. Hopkins and his team, yeah, they've done a stellar job bringing attention to some lesser-known movies that deserve introductions to new audiences, and I'm a big fan of their products and what they've accomplished, particularly in recent years. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash DonateCineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. They say March comes in like a lion but goes out like a lamb, but it will be more like a wham next month when we honor one of the very finest and most beloved films of all time. Join us next time as we celebrate the golden anniversary, yep, the big 5-0, of Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, originally released in March 1972. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're getting better, not older. Important distinction. Thanks again for giving us a listen. Thank you.